0: Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Last week we looked at the baptism of Christ. This week the temptation of Christ. But wedged in between his baptism and his temptation, Luke inserts a genealogy at the end of chapter 3. And we wonder, well, what what is that doing there? Remember, as students of the Bible, we need to ask good questions. Why Wouldn't Luke put the genealogy at the very beginning of his book like Matthew did at the beginning of his gospel? And we've been saying that Luke will arrange his gospel in ways to highlight certain themes. Sometimes even telling stories out of order, which isn't dishonest and it's not a mistake. It's done purposefully to highlight certain themes. Don't pass over the genealogy. It's there for a reason. And I believe the purpose of it wedged between the baptism and the temptation is to highlight the dual nature of Christ. That he's both man, son of man, and he's son of God. Certainly his birth, as Luke has recorded for us, was supernatural. No one has ever been born that way. If you think about the fact that the first man was born from the dirt, right? God fashioned first man from the dirt, and nobody's been fashioned that way since. We're not going to go into how exactly people are made because there's um, young children here, and you should have that conversation with them yourself. But if Jesus now is the last Adam, as Paul calls him, then we would expect that there would be something unique about his birth as well. And indeed, he is born with his heavenly father being his biological father, so to speak. Uh, No one else has been born of a virgin like he was. So the first man born out of the ground and the the uh, last Adam born from the Virgin Mary and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Where the first man would fail, though, as our representative, we're going to see today that Christ succeeds. Where the first man fails, Christ succeeds. And in order for him to do this, he must be a man. If he's going to represent us, he must be human. And so we saw that his baptism That he identified with humanity in the waters of baptism. He didn't need to be baptized. He was without sin. But he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. He did what we should do as human beings. Humble ourselves and admit that we need our God. We need a Savior. We need cleansing. Jesus not needing the cleansing... But as our representative, if he's going to live the perfect life, he needed to live the life that we should have lived, the life that the first Adam should have lived. But as baptism we saw last week, a voice from heaven, the father says, you are my son and you I am well pleased. Nobody else who got baptized that day or since has had a voice from heaven declare, you are my son. And so Jesus is fully man and fully God. Theologians call this the hypostatic union. And uh, we like to use these big terms so they can justify making us go to seminary for four years. Um, But we often say Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. Well, how could that be? It it is. We accept it by faith. He's the God-man. He's Fully God and fully man. And if we look at the genealogy, it starts by saying when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, give or take. About 30 years of age, give or take. Being as was supposed the son of Joseph. From a human perspective, it seemed that Joseph was his father. Uh, In a sense, it was his adopted father. We know it's not his biological father. But to the world, they didn't understand that um, Mary conceived under the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we'll see later in Luke's gospel that many accused Mary of um, conceiving Jesus out of wedlock. And that became a source of insult for Jesus. A source of insult. But... It says the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, or, or your Bible might say Heli, uh, same name. What's interesting is that is Mary's mother. Eli, we know historically, didn't have sons of his own. So when Mary was betrothed to Joseph, Joseph became by birth like the son of Eli. So in the genealogy, when it says Joseph, the son of Eli, Eli is actually his father-in-law. And the entire genealogy from Luke's perspective goes through Mary's side of the family, not Joseph's. Matthew's genealogy goes through Joseph's line of the fam, uh, family line in order to um, demonstrate that Jesus is in the kingly line. Is in the kingly line, but on Mary's side of the family, the genealogy goes through David. Mary is a relative of King David, and so we see that Jesus fulfills the prophetic words that there would always be someone sitting on the throne of David for all eternity. Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant. It's wonderful in God's providence and in his sovereignty that he supplies two genealogies for us, and each genealogy is important because it fulfills... um, Prophecy, it makes good on God's promises. Only God could arrange such a thing. So Jesus' baptism established his identity and his mission. His genealogy establishes his dual nature. Because if we follow the genealogy, look how it ends. It takes us all the way back to the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God the son of god finally we're going to look at his temptation today and the temptation is going to establish christ as our victor our victor he, he succeeds where the first adam failed again uh, theologians talk about jesus being our federal head he's our representative Adam was our first federal head. He represented the whole human race. He failed. He plunged the whole human race and with it, all of creation into sin. And we're born with the sin nature. We're not sinners because we've sinned. The Bible says we sin because we're sinners. We're born into sin. And some will say, well, that's not fair. I didn't even get a chance to live The perfect life on my own. Why does Adam have to be my representative? And before you grumble and complain too far, keep in mind that the same system that you think is working against you mightily works out in your favor because Christ becomes your new federal head. He lives the perfect life for you. And not only that, He takes your place on the cross. So, for the rest of the world that has rejected Christ and says, I want to be my own representative, I'll be good enough on my own. They're fooling themselves and they're missing out on this great gift. The last Adam, the perfect man, the sinless one, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who becomes our faithful representative, our perfect representative. Regardless of who our representative is Wednesday morning here in this nation, if you are in Christ, you've got a much better president. Amen? Amen. We're not citizens of this world in Christ. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and our king is Christ Jesus. That makes voting easy. With my life and my heart and my words, I vote for Christ today and every day. The redemption of humanity includes the God-man succeeding where man failed. We're going to see this throughout Luke's gospel, this reversing of the curse, where the first man failed, the last man, Jesus, succeeding in, in all sorts of ways. And as we focus on the life of Jesus It'll humble us because we'll see our own failings where Adam failed. But it'll also give us hope and encouragement that our Christ, our king, our representative is successful where we fail so often. And so on that last day when we stand before God, we can be honest about who we are. I'm an utter failure, but in Christ, I claim victory. I'm an utter failure, but in Christ I claim victory. So before he goes out to preach, after he's been baptized, there's this period of temptation. And that makes sense because when we look at the full meta-narrative of Scripture, the full story, before man goes out into the world, he's tempted and tested in Genesis 3. And He fails, Adam and Eve fail. And so before Jesus is going to launch out into the world in his public ministry, there's going to be a time of tempting. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, remember the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form at his baptism, descended like a dove and rested upon him. He is filled with the Holy Spirit where others were temporarily filled with the Spirit in order to do some kind of amazing task or give some kind of revelation from God, Jesus is always full of the Holy Spirit. And in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us permanently. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He returns from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. This is God the Father working through God the Holy Spirit to bring Jesus into this situation where he would have a confrontation with Satan. He was being tempted by the devil during that 40 days. We see three of the temptations. The text implies that there was ongoing temptation. And he ate nothing during those days and when they had ended he became hungry. He is man. He gets hungry. You and I get hungry. I'm hungry now. I don't go very long without food. I burn it off really fast. Don't hate me. I just it is what it is. <clears throat> makes you feel any better, ninety percent of what I eat tends to hurt my stomach. So it's it's not eating out of joy, that's for sure. If I could just find the perfect liquid nutrition and just drink it, I'd I'd be happy. You may hate me even more after saying that, but I'm a food is fuel kind of guy. So I've never had to go, go this long without food. Honestly I rarely have to go without food. It's the end of the month. We haven't been to Costco yet. We complain that the cupboards are bare. Honestly, there's food in our house, probably enough food for two, three weeks. But none of us are favorites, right? And like the Israelites complaining and grumbling in the wilderness over manna, how could we complain and grumble when so many millions go to bed hungry every night around the world for 40 days. He didn't eat. And in our weakened condition physically is when we tend to cave into temptation, isn't it? When I feel strong and healthy and robust and have plenty of sleep, I can hold it together pretty good. And just when I'm becoming too self-sufficient, God takes me through a time of humbling illness, sickness, sleep deprivation, um, especially long work week, a string of really tough counseling cases. And before you know it, you are reminded of your human frailty, your weakness, and you're snapping and yelling at people in the house. You're eating junk food or watching junk food on TV, if you know what I mean. Like, I don't want to think anymore. I just want to shut my brain off and... When you shut your brain off and you stop living intentionally, that's when temptation comes in. And so Jesus is in this very vulnerable position in his humanity. Don't let his divinity swallow up his humanity in your mind. He's a man. If he wasn't fully human like we are, then the temptation doesn't count. Oh, come on, he's Jesus. What does he know about being tempted? The Bible says he was tempted in every way but without sin. And the devil comes to tempt him, and I want to say a few words on the devil, very few words, because he doesn't get the spotlight. But we should understand who our enemy is. It'd be wrong to completely ignore the reality that is the devil, but it would be just as wrong to be overly worried about the devil. He's he's already defeated on the cross. He knows he's going to lose, but he's got that attitude like, well, if I'm not going to be at the trophy presentation, I'm going to make sure a few others aren't as well. It's completely out of hatred and spite for God. He hates the things God loves. The devil, which means slanderer or accuser, is Satan, which means adversary. Bible tells us originally he was a holy angel Named Lucifer, according to Isaiah 14, 12. The highest of all created beings. So he was this amazing creation that was designed to bring glory to God. And he he began to read his own press, as we say. He believed his own headlines. He became arrogant, and in his pride, he sought to raise his throne above the stars of God. As a result of his sin, Satan was cast out of heaven. There was only room for one God. In heaven, apparently, along with one third of his angels, we say apparently because in Revelation twelve four, there's you know uh, a third of the stars getting swept out of heaven. Uh, we take that to mean other angels. Difficult, as we just covered last week in the discipleship class, to interpret apocalyptic literature, but it, it seems like a fair uh, explanation of that text. The Bible describes the devil as a liar, a murderer, a dragon, a snake, the accuser, the evil one, the god of this world, little g, the prince of the power of the air, a roaring lion seeking to devour someone, and the tempter who succeeded in luring Adam and Eve and threw them the entire human race into sin. This synopsis of Satan's life I got straight out of a MacArthur commentary. I thought it was a fair synopsis. That just about hits all the passages on Satan. It's not as much as you would think. Enough to make us aware that he's real. But not so much that we should be, again, overly fascinated with him. He is an individual He is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. He's not following you around daily, forcing you to sin. He is, though, been given temporary authority by God to be, again, the prince of the power of the air or the ruler of this age. He has set up the world system. The more we read the news, the more we say, yeah, yeah. There's such a naive view of the world when you're little. And as you get older and now with the internet and WikiLeaks and whatever, we're starting to have the curtain peeled back and we realize it's a mess out there. It is a mess. It's far too complicated for me to sort it all out. Though I try, probably to my own demise, read too much politics sometimes. I'm comforted by the scene in the book of Ezekiel where God takes Ezekiel up with the spirit and takes him behind closed doors where all the leaders and movers and shakers are doing abominable things in darkness. And God says, look, they're not getting away with anything. I know what's going on. It gives me great comfort to know God knows exactly what's going on. No one's getting away with anything It's all happening according to his plan and his timing. No need to fret. No need to worry. It is a time to be sober-minded, though. And as Matt said this morning, to be in prayer at all times and pray for leaders. So then how does Satan tempt us if he's not sitting on our shoulder Because God has allowed Satan to have temporary dominion over the fallen earth, Satan energizes the world system in such a way that entices our fallen flesh. So our enemies are our fallen flesh, our unredeemed flesh, the world system, and Satan. Satan sets up the world system, the world system entices our flesh, But when we fall into sin, nobody should say the devil made me do it or that it's God's fault for allowing Satan to have authority. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. He allows us to be placed in situations where there's a trial. And in fact, the word in the Greek for trial and temptation is the same word. God intends it as a trial. When we fail the test, we've turned it into temptation. God has given us everything we need for faith and godliness. He's given us the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome evil. When we fall into temptation and fail the test, we have no one to blame but ourselves. Even when we're angry... And I say that because often when I meet with people and ask them to confess their sins and in pride, they don't want to confess any sin. The one sin they'll confess is I was angry, but it was because they made me angry. There is a, such a thing as righteous anger and Jesus exhibited. It. Righteous anger when He cleansed the temple twice, but I would have to say that 99.9% of the time our anger is not righteous. Yeah, but he left room. (laughs) Pastor left room. 0.1%. I'm saying best to stay away from anger. Lest you deceive yourself into thinking your anger is righteous anger. James says the the uh, anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You can yell at people to get them to change their behavior, but if their heart doesn't change, you haven't produced any righteousness. Each one of us is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust or desire. The word lust is desire. It's not sexual lust. It's desire. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth Death. Therein lies the rub, and that's the focus of the sermon today. How are we tempted? We're tempted when the very thing that God said would bring death, we convince ourselves would bring life, happiness, satisfaction, joy. And God says, no, it will not only not bring any of these things, it brings death, destruction, depression, separation. So Satan's plan of attack then is to convince us that God is not to be trusted. Satan's plan of attack is to convince us that God is not to be trusted. This is what exactly, this is what happened in Genesis 3. Man and woman created by God in God's image to have dominion and glorify God by keeping God's commands Glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. We only know what is true, what is right, what is good, if God reveals it to us. We cannot figure it out on our own. It must be revealed to us. Truth is outside of us. It must be revealed to us. Who we are must be revealed to us. What our purpose is must be revealed to us. What is good and evil must be revealed to us. What will bring us happiness and satisfaction must be revealed to us. We are not autonomous thinkers. You can think things all you want, but it doesn't make them true. and doesn't make them right. And so we get part of the story here in Genesis 3. We don't see all that God told man and woman, but we have enough of the story to understand why the world is the way that it is. God told man and woman that they were free to eat from any tree in the garden. How glorious of God, how generous of God. All the diversity and variety of His creation. And literally, yes, fruit, But more so, everything that God has made for our enjoyment. But he said, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat of that tree, you will die. Pretty black and white. And it's implied that he defined death for them. Often people will say, well, how do they know what death is if they didn't experience it? You don't have to experience everything to know what it is. That's a lie right out of the pit. Well, let me go experience it, then I'll get back to you, God, and let you know if it was really bad or not. No. No. You know, we warn our children, we lay wisdom in front of them. One of Nathan's favorite proverbs, in essence, says, here's wisdom, now get wisdom. We tell our kids wisdom, and often, and you were guilty of this too, it was like, well, I hear you, but I think I need to go taste for myself. I need to go experience for myself. I need to find out for myself. Maybe I'll be the exception to the rule. That's our sin nature at work. Why wouldn't you trust your parents? They love you. They take care of you. They sacrifice for you. They want the best for you. And here is Satan tempting man and woman to not trust their heavenly father. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He's no idiot. He was this very high and lofty created being. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? He's quoting God. But a little bit of a misquote, right? So we'll twist or pervert the word of God. That's Satan's first line of attack. Twist or pervert the word of God. Did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree of the garden? Wow, that sounds pretty stingy. He's holding back. And she wisely responds from the fruit of the trees of the garden. We may eat, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Now, some commentators point out that she added to God's word. God didn't say you couldn't touch it. I don't know that we need to put too much emphasis on that, though the Bible warns us. At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, not to add or subtract from this word. But perhaps in her effort to want to be obedient to God, she added, I shouldn't even touch it. Or maybe her husband leading her wife said, look, don't even go near that tree, don't even touch it. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. This is tantamount to calling God a liar. I know God said you would die. I'm saying you will not die. Surely you will not die. What's the implication that God is holding back, that God lied to you, that God doesn't want you to have something Because he's jealous or he is miserly. He doesn't want to share something with you. Well, what could God possibly not want to share with us? For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open. Eyes will be open, then you won't need God to tell you everything. You could be your own source of authority. You could be your own definer of reality. You can decide for yourself what is right And wrong. You will be like God. Knowing good and evil. Hey being like God. Sounds like a good thing. In fact isn't that what we're all trying to do. Be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. No that's different than being like God. In the sense of usurping his authority. But that's the temptation. And. Eve fell into temptation. By extension, we see her husband is standing right there. He is her federal head, just as Adam is our federal head. And if you are in Christ, Christ is your federal head. And so the man allowed his wife to be tempted. She took the fruit, gave to him. He ate. We're not blaming Eve here. Adam was the lead. And they plunged the entire human race and, by extension, the planet into sin. And you say, well, they didn't die right away. Yes, they did. Death is separation. They were separated from God. They immediately tried to hide from God. They were now naked and ashamed. They tried to hide from God. They were banished from the garden. That is death, that is separation. Eventually, they would die physically. Their soul would be separated from their bodies. And if they continued in their rebellion against God, they would experience the final death, the second death, eternal separation from God, eternal judgment, eternal punishment. And so death is a terrible thing. I know that's an understatement, but... Words cannot describe the devastation of death. On the day you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And they became convinced that the opposite would happen. That the very thing God said would bring death would bring them more life, more happiness, more satisfaction. And that is the attitude we've inherited. That's what we need to understand about ourselves. Our sinful, weak, fallen flesh will be tempted by things that appear good. Right, it says she saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye, good for eating, yummy, and able to make one wise. Those sound like good things. And God has given us plenty of good things, and in their proper boundaries, we can enjoy those good things. But outside those boundaries, those very things that look like they're pleasing to the eye, yummy, and able to make you wise, will ultimately lead to separation and death. So the devil's going to try the same tactics against Jesus. And so Jesus in his weakened condition. Note here uh, something very interesting. Adam and Eve were tempted in paradise. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. They had everything they could possibly want in full bellies and perfect companionship. Jesus was all alone with an empty belly out in this desolate wilderness. Our first The first man, our first representative, had every reason, every advantage to overcome temptation and failed. The last Adam had every reason to fail and he succeeds. How does he succeed? Because that's going to be our example. How does he succeed? And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. He quotes scripture and he quotes it correctly and he interprets it correctly and he applies it correctly. It's not enough to just carry around your Bible. You need to read it, know what it means and apply it correctly. Man shall not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. A loaf of bread will feed him for a day. The word of God will feed him for all eternity. Bread feeds the body, which is important, but the bread of life feeds the soul for all eternity. I know that may sound trite when somebody's starving, but it is truth. And so we meet people's physical needs, but we ought to tell them, what kind of bread and what kind of living water will satisfy their eternal needs. Notice in parentheses I have the word sense. Satan is not tempting Jesus by saying, I don't think you're really the Son of God. Hey, if you're the Son of God, prove it, do a miracle. That's not what he's saying. If you understood Greek grammar, and I guess that's why... You send your pastor off to seminary to study Greek. What this is saying is it assumes that the if part of the if-then statement is true. So let me phrase it this way. Let me give you an example. If you really are the husband and you wear the pants, then command your wife to do X, Y, and Z. If you really are the senior pastor, then tell the elders you want to do this. If you you really are, it assumes that you are. That is my title. If you are the husband, you are the head of the home, that is your prerogative scripturally, then prove it. Go take what's yours. Oh, don't bother asking God his will. Just that's that's the point. If you're the son of God, you have the right and the power and authority to turn this bread and stone into bread. But that wasn't God's plan for Jesus. He knew in due time God would feed his body. In due time. So the temptation is to doubt God's love. Why would God withhold bread for you? You can see the implication here. Let's use our sanctified imagination here. Satan saying, how about those Israelites? They were in the wilderness for 40 years and they got bread every morning. And they were a bunch of complainers and grumblers. They're not the son of God like you. Why should you have to wait 40 days without bread? And you understand this is how Satan tempts us. Oh, God loves you. You're a son or daughter of God. Then why can't you have this thing? Why do you have to go through this suffering and pain? I mean, if God loved you, he'd let you have this thing that would make you happy and satisfied. And not only it'd make you happy, it would give you cause to praise him and worship him. You see how Satan works. The devil's not questioning whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. The devil knows Jesus is the Son of God. He's got the right theology. James said even the demons know God is God, but at least they tremble. He's He was there. He knows who created him. Satan knows who his creator is. He's getting... The son to doubt the love of the father. So he moves to a second angle of attack. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory for it has been handed over to me. That's true. He's got the right theology for a time. For a time, he is... The God of this world, little g. He is the prince of the power of the air. Now, here's where his theology is not correct, and I give it to whomever I wish. Temporarily, but not ultimately. Jesus knows it belongs to him, it belongs to Jesus. Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. God has given Jesus all authority. He says, therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Look, you can bypass the cross. We can skip the hard work. You can get the prize without the sacrifice. You can have the exaltation before the humiliation. And haven't we uh, not all inherited that tendency? that We want the prize without the hard work. We want the A without the study. But exaltation always starts with humiliation. God exalts the proud. I'm sorry. Scratch that. (laughs) God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Praise the Lord for context. I hope nobody takes... That five seconds out of the sermon. Guess what pastor said today? God exalts the proud. So, Jesus refutes him by quoting scripture again. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Only. By the way here, if you're familiar with Matthew's version of the story, this temptation comes third in Matthew's story. Luke, it comes second. Again, Luke takes the freedom to rearrange things chronologically just for the purpose of storytelling. It is, it is not dishonest. It's not an error in your Bible. It's not a contradiction. It, it's purposeful. It was common in his day to write... In that fashion. The third temptation. And he led him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written. And he quotes a messianic psalm. Wow, that's playing dirty. You know and I know this this psalm is written about you, the son of God. It is written He will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said. Not it is written, it is said. God spoke these words into existence. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. We are not to put God to the test. And whenever our weak flesh convinces ourselves that this thing would make me happy, this is the thing that would satisfy me, or why, God, would you allow me to go through the suffering If you really loved me, you would take this suffering away from me. You would take this pain away from me. Or you would give me this thing that my heart desires. And we put God to the test. Prove your love for me. Give me the thing that I want. Even though I know the scriptures forbid it. Most of the time when we fall into sin, it's a momentary lapse of of Good judgment. You know, those oops sins. But there will be times when you struggle with something that goes down to the depths of your being, to the, the core of who you are. And you've got to peel back the surface layers and see what is the real idolatry. What is really going on there? Why am I so fixated on this thing? Why can't I let go of this thing? And it's in those areas of our life where we will be tempted to question God's love for us. His sovereignty over our, our lives and we'll put him to the test. We had very close friends in the uh, first church we attended when after becoming believers and uh Uh, dear friends of ours and his brother had had cancer and he he prayed that god would heal his brother he was sure god would heal his brother because why wouldn't god want to do this thing and god is he's loving and of course he's going to heal my and his brother wasn't healed and they they drifted from church they just stopped going you know there were there were other extenuating circumstances but that was kind of the issue Why, God? Why 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 wouldn't you do this? It makes sense to me. If I was God, I would, I, would, I would have given this gift. And we don't know all of God's purposes. But we could trust in His character. We could trust in His faithfulness. We could trust in His love for us because He not sparing His only Son. God demonstrates His love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us he didn't just come to live for us he came to die for us we're assured from the scriptures that there is no temptation that is overtaking you but such as common to man nobody can say well you don't understand pastor i have this unique circumstance now that's that's again satan trying to tempt you God understands. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. And the way of escape is trusting in God's goodness. If you can't trust in God, then whom can you trust in? That is not the solution to question God's goodness, to question his wisdom, to question his power or his faithfulness. Well, God doesn't understand. He doesn't have to go through the pain that I am going through. Or that is not true. Jesus, the God-man, is not a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help and help in time of need. We might find mercy and grace to help us in the time of need if we go to Christ. Mercy, forgiveness, grace, strength to overcome the temptation. Strength to believe, If God, if you say, I don't need this in my life, then I don't need this in my life. As we're closing, I I, I wanted to apply this in a specific situation. I mentioned last week, thank you for your prayers if you prayed for my parents who uh, made the difficult decision to leave their church after 48 years as uh, their call committee called an openly gay married pastor. And for years they've been thinking about leaving because their church had drifted and drifted and drifted from the word of God. And this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Unfortunately for many, they... We're like, oh, I see, you're a homophobe or you're a bigot. That's why you're leaving. And as they second-guess themselves, they say, well, maybe we should have left sooner so it doesn't look like this. And or, or they search their own hearts. Is this true about us? Were we okay with all the other compromise but not this one? So they've been doing some soul-searching. But th- this issue is not going away. It's only a matter of time before someone you know and love um, appeals to you that this is who I am. This is the way I'm made. This is what will make me happy. Why can't you be happy for me? And, they're, and it's going to be t- uh, difficult. You're going to really like this person. They're going to be very enjoyable. They're going to be very compassionate and loving people. They're going to live their life in ways that are more compelling than some of your Christian friends. They could be Christians themselves and affirm Christ and be obedient to all other aspects of His Word but this one area. And they're going to believe with all their hearts that if God truly loved me, He'd let me have this thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not an ugly thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, if the people were... Ugly and vile and crass and rude. It'd be easier in some ways. But this is why it's making inroads into the church. And our answer to them can't merely be. Hey, I know it stinks. But God says no. Because in essence, what we'd be saying then is, look. It looks like. You're happy, and you love each other, and uh, I don't know why God would say no, but He is, and I I have no other choice. Uh, that impugns God's character. That makes it look like God's holding back a good thing. In essence, we're putting ourselves above God and judging God and saying, God, I don't know why He'd say no to this wonderful thing. The answer is... God has made you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows me better than I know myself. He knows what ultimately brings flourishing and life and happiness and satisfaction and joy. And we all have proclivities. We all have leanings towards things that seem good to us but are contrary to God's word. I have my own struggles. But the answer isn't to think God is holding back. He's not holding back. He gave us his son, the best thing he could give us. If he would not withheld his son from us, then he's not going to withhold any good thing from us. So if he says this is not a good thing, you can trust him. It's not a good thing. And that goes for any sexual deviance. Oh, we're engaged, we're going to get married soon, so we might as well. No, that, that, that is sinful as well. And you can add to the list. Somewhere there's a place where you're going to be tempted to say, surely God would be okay with this if he was a good God who likes to give good gifts to his children. That's a much harder temptation. That's why this is so difficult. And the answer is to say, God is good. He can be trusted. He does want good things for me. From every tree of the garden, I can freely eat, just not from this one. Because that one brings death and separation. That's what it means to trust fully in God. Praise Jesus, he was able to do that where we have failed. Don't let it be an excuse, though, to go on sinning presumptuously. Thank God for His forgiveness and His power for us to flee temptation. Let me pray for you. You pray for me. This is really important in our lives. Father, thank You for Christ, for that perfect life, and showing us that under extreme circumstances, He was able to trust in Your character, Father. Trust in Your goodness. We don't have to go to the cross. And he even asked you if there was any other way that you would take that cup from him, but your will be done, not his own. May that be our prayer. And may we help others who are struggling to know, yes, it's hard, but trust in God's goodness. He won't let you down. Sin never delivers what it promises Lord, in spite of whatever happens Tuesday, Wednesday morning, you're still our God and we are still your people. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen.